let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your heart to the Lord. As we were standing there just a moment ago singing that song 644 and the ones that preceded it, it certainly reminds us of the greatness and the infinitude that awaits in those golden strands of that climate beyond this one. Truly, as we can appreciate the lifting of our voices on and on as the ages roll onward, what a blessing that shall be. And doesn't it hearken in us a desire to, in fact, arrive at that golden place? It is good, as Brother Gary mentioned earlier, that we've each been able to assemble together this evening with a desire to lift high the banner of God's truth and to appreciate the greatness of us as we extend a worship in His direction. Tonight, as you may have noted in the bulletin, as well as on the wall to my left, I would invite us to give a thought for a few moments to one of the apostles this evening. And as we do that, perhaps one of the apostles who is given lesser consideration, at least in light of some of the information that we shall consider tonight. Some introductory remarks, as you can well see, might be these. When you and I give thought to the apostles, no doubt our mind perhaps races to Peter and to Andrew and to James and to John, maybe even a number of the others as their names are so often listed in the New Testament. And as we also give thought to some of the activities in which they engaged and the tremendous work that was theirs to set the foundation of and in fact carry onward the work as we see the book of Acts. Some of the considerations of it though certainly help us see that these were towering figures of importance. Ephesians 2.20 reminds us that they, along with the prophets, served as a foundation. They carried the work onward once our Savior had ascended back to the Father. In all those characteristics, we see that these men, twelve of them in number, were in fact extremely important, and their work was of course extremely significant. Tonight, as you and I give thought to them and some of the things contained in their efforts, might we remember in John 16, verse 14, in fact, beginning in verse 13, we're reminded on that occasion that Jesus said to them these words, How be it when He, the Spirit of truth, has come, He shall guide you into all truth. For He shall not speak of Himself, but that which He heareth, that shall He speak. As our Savior in those hours prior to the crucifixion, pointed, in fact, to them and remind them that they would be guided into all truth. What work rested upon the shoulders of these apostles? What great work in carrying on the church and making sure it was guided in the proper way as we find in the book of Acts? But as we give thought to those apostles, one of them, Judas Iscariot, perhaps also is one that we often consider, but usually for a very different reason. It is for that reason and others tonight, I would invite you to think with me about him, Judas Iscariot, not only his apostleship, but some lessons that you and I might glean from a consideration of his life. As we do that, we certainly will begin by giving thought to the charge and the commission and challenge of those apostles. And it is to this particular slide I would invite your attention. Jesus, from an early stage, in fact, near the beginning of his public ministry, he had already garnered a rather large set of those interested in His teachings even then. As early as Matthew the fourth chapter, we already find that crowds would listen to Him, they would follow Him, they had an interest in what He had to say. Sometimes their interest was more selfish. 
but there does seem to be many who were enamored by it because he could perform miracles. And he could also teach them in ways that astonished them. They recognized that he didn't speak like the scribes and the Pharisees and the other teachers, for he taught with authority. Matthew 7, verses 28 and 29. As our Savior taught and as He impressed upon them the mission and the objective for which He came, isn't it amazing and also interesting that we find that this group of individuals followed Him? We readily appreciate, do we not, in Luke the sixth chapter, that on one occasion our Savior prayed all night long. And when the morning came, He selected from those disciples twelve. And those twelve were at that point called apostles, which word means sent out. They were sent. These were selected to be particular individuals that would carefully follow His teachings, listen to Him with intensity, and be those whose shoulders would in fact rest a large amount of work once our Savior ascended back to heaven. As you'll notice in some of those statements of Luke the sixth chapter, we do find that from one perspective or another, these individuals were transformed men. He had told them, had He not, two chapters earlier, that if you follow Me, I will make you fishers of men. Peter left his activity primarily as a fisherman and became thus this apostle to our Savior. And we remember James did the same. Others had other occupations. Levi was a tax collector all the while we find that they were given to the commitment and to the intensity that went along with becoming one that would follow Jesus the Christ. You'll notice that in Matthew the 10th chapter, as the time had come that Jesus commissioned and sent these twelve out on the limited commission, He gave them power to cast out devils. He gave them power to heal the sick. He gave them various and sundry other powers. And we notice that that listing of apostles is therein given. And in that list is the name of Judas Iscariot. Judas too also, it, you see, had that power. He was able to teach. He was able to cast out devils. He was able to heal the sick. He was able to do other miraculous capabilities. Judas was one of those twelve listed along with the other eleven in that place. The fascinating consideration about that does remind us, doesn't it, that here was Judas, the very one that would later be his betrayer, the very one that would later be the critical element that would send him onward to that death at Calvary. And yet Judas at this time was one who had the opportunity and privilege of laboring at the side of Jesus, who on that occasion could in fact go about and do great works for the cause of God. You'll notice on that slide too, that word Iscariot. It literally means man of Kirioth. And thus it would seem that perhaps that indicates the city or region from which Judas had come. It would seem, if that's correct, that it was a city somewhat far in the south of Palestine. Judas Iscariot. This man Judas thus appears from time to time on the sacred pages of the New Testament. We learn about him in many perspectives and in many ways, but we also rather quickly note this. It doesn't take much reading. Almost every time Judas is mentioned, we find a particular statement in the writings of Matthew and Mark and Luke and John, all of them alike. 
He is identified to be the one that betrayed him. Or he was a traitor. Judas, the one that would betray him. And time and again, that is given as the way by which we, you and I still, by and large, know him. I've listed several of those passages. In John the 12th chapter, Greg read for us yet another passage. I'd invite you to revisit that one. As it gives us some additional consideration about Judas, it again reads as follows. This particular circumstance, let's begin reading in verse 4. Then saith one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, which should betray him. Why was not this ointment sold for three hundred pence and given to the poor? This he said, not that he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief and had the bag and bare what was put therein. And immediately we encounter the following set of thoughts concerning Judas first. As we initially encounter verse 4, it may have occurred to us, well, Judas had a great interest in the poor. He wished to ensure that this particular ointment was used in the largest financial way so that the poor might be maximally benefited. But however, the Holy Spirit quickly, through the writing of John, told us this in verse number 5 and 6. This he said not because he cared for the poor, not that he had a genuine interest and concern for the poor, but he had another sinister consideration in mind. Verse 6 says, but because he was a thief. And he goes on to explain it like this. He had the bag. And furthermore, he took away what was put therein. John, by inspiration, then informs us that this Judas really was a thief. In the sense that he was the treasure, it would seem, for Jesus and the apostolic council or the apostolic band. He was the one by which, of course, he was the safekeeper of the money. But we're quickly informed that Judas apparently helped himself to what was in the bag. He embezzled, if you please. He stole from the others as well as from the Lord that money that they would need for the character of their mission, the activities as they travel from place to place. Judas helped himself. He held the bag, but he took away what was in it. When we, you and I give thought to Judas as a thief, this one who had himself had the power to cast out unclean spirits, he himself had the power to preach and proclaim as the other apostles had. He himself had the privilege and opportunity to stand side by side and to labor in the kingdom of God with the Son of God himself. And yet he was a thief. Perhaps all of that challenges us as well to look at just a few of the thoughts at the bottom of that slide. Because what happened in the later activities in the life of Judas... After this mentioned in John the 12th chapter, some of the next elements in our consideration of Him would in fact be these. We find that Jesus could very well have publicly exposed this man Judas. There was that night that Jesus dipped in the sop and He gave that to Judas. And on that occasion, the other apostles were confused. They thought that Jesus was just charging Judas to go and make ready preparation and buy what was needed for the Passover celebration. But Jesus had only said, What thou doest, Judas, do quickly. Jesus, being able to read his heart, knew full well what was about to transpire and knew what role Judas would have in it. We now come, though, to appreciate on that night, Jesus perhaps could have made a public spectacle of Judas 
but he didn't. Rather, he was no doubt very hopeful that Judas would appreciate the nature of what he was about to do. One perhaps final set of thoughts would be these. For some 30 pieces of silver, Judas, of course, betrayed his master. He did that, of course, as he made arrangements, and Luke 22.3 puts it in these words, Then Satan entered into Judas. He had had opportunity. He could have made an about-face. He could have made the opportunities to do very differently. And yet, finally, he made that penultimate decision, that decision in which he went and made those final arrangements, and for 30 pieces of silver, he betrayed the Son of God. In the act of that betrayal, we notice that in the hours that followed it, we do read in Matthew 27, beginning in verse 2, it says, Then when he saw that he was condemned, it would seem that Judas never really believed Jesus would ultimately die for what he had done. Maybe, maybe he thought Jesus was going to work a miracle. Maybe he thought Jesus could always free himself no matter what the difficulties came about. Maybe Judas thought Jesus could work any miracle he wanted and that no matter what I do, Jesus will be able ultimately to be free. Because that text again does say, then when he saw that he was condemned, apparently when Judas saw that Jesus really was to the point now of condemnation, he had moved through the activities of the trial, he had moved through the characteristics and been pronounced guilty, he was now really on the way toward death. When Judas saw this, it says he came back and brought the money, cast it down at the feet of the chief priests and elders. And it was they who said, in response to that, that this money was unfit. It's involving of blood. See thou to that, they said. It was then that Judas went out and hanged himself. Judas committed suicide. He took his own life. We find then the rather sad end of this life that could have been so much different, but yet it ended with such tragedy. It ended as a traitor. It ended in betrayal. It ended in one who had in fact betrayed the very one who would soon give his life for all the others. When you and I give thought to Judas from that per perspective, it's certainly fair to say that the Old Testament had prophesied, albeit briefly, that there would be these activities of this one named Judas. The Old Testament didn't name him, but it did say in Psalm 41 that he would, in fact, have a part as the friend of the one that would betray the very Son of God. With those thoughts in mind, as we give consideration to Judas, what might be some things that could assist us and help us in our desire to even be near to God ourselves? Certainly, foolishness was descriptive of the way of Judas. But might I invite us to look at this particular lesson, a lesson in which we at least ask about the heart of Judas. We noted earlier that Judas, at least at the time of Matthew 10, had been given power over unclean spirits. He had been given the opportunity to go and work and labor in the fields of the God of heaven, teaching and instructing about the nature of the Christ, encouraging them to understand that the kingdom of God was on its way. Judas was a part of that mission. The Bible doesn't inform us of the successfulness of Judas in that mission, but it does say that when they returned, Jesus was 
in a celebratory manner. He was able to appreciate the good work that the apostles had done. I would invite each of us to consider in light of that what that does say in light of John 12. By the time we reach that chapter, the one holding the bag, the one who stole out of it, the one who was motivated and prompted, it would seem, by greed and money and covetousness, we find in this a man who apparently had a heart that had been seared. All he had seen Jesus do. How many sermons had he heard Jesus preach? How many miracles had he witnessed Jesus perform? How many opportunities of good had he personally seen with Jesus accomplish? Apparently by the time of John 12, that meant little to Judas. He was motivated by an interior sense of desire, money and greed and all that it allowed him to accomplish. It would seem that his thievery, the fact he was called a thief, motivates us to see the selfishness that had engulfed his life. You and I might ask, how could he ever have allowed himself to be this way? How often do you and I ask ourselves similar questions today? A person who once was faithful in the work of the church, an individual who once had such potential, and yet as the years roll by, we one day are astounded when we find what this person has done, now living in the throes of fornication, perhaps living in the throes of various and sundry other known evil activities, and we just shake our head and ask, How? What could have motivated this person with a heart that no doubt knew where he once had stood? And yet now, this person is in a lost condition and seemingly doesn't care. Maybe you and I are astonished as we wonder how it could be. Look with me for just a moment at Judas. He certainly has a character very different than Peter and John and Andrew and others. We often read about these others who their works were so noble and so noteworthy. Maybe that text in Acts 4 verse 13 says a great deal. When Peter and John on that occasion were so bold in their proclamation of truth, those around them made this observation despite the fact that they were ignorant and unlearned men. It nonetheless was said they had been with Jesus. Their life had been transformed. The character of their disposition of heart and mind simply was not the same as it had been in former days and times. It would seem that with Judas that wasn't the case. Although he was involved in some of those early activities, it seems he was not a transformed man. It certainly doesn't seem, given the fact he's a, he was a thief, that he was not one that was overwhelmed with conviction and light of the truth of God. Did Judas just go through the motions in Matthew chapter 10? Did he simply go through without being convicted in spirit and heart? Maybe we wonder. This much we know, he was a thief, and the text says he was. How could he, knowing the power of the Christ, knowing the thoroughness and grandeur and the fact that Jesus was the one who claimed to be the Messiah, and he had seen many evidences to that truth, and he still stole from him. He still stole from the cause that Jesus supported. He stole from the works that no doubt benefited many who were poor and outcast. Judas's heart surely must have been rather seared by the time we reach the 12th chapter of John. A seared heart perhaps challenges us to appreciate that isn't it possible that that can happen today? An individual who was reared in a godly home 
who had parents who insisted on that person attending services, learning Bible lessons, appreciating the fervor and interest in worship, had a role to play in the activities associated with the church. And yet the time comes, that person reaches adulthood, move out of the house, and then they become apostate. They perhaps reach the point two, three, four, ten years later when they seemingly have no interest in the church. Has their heart become seared? Have they reached a point in life when, deep down, they remember the lessons dad and mother taught them? They remember well the songs that they sung in church services and the Bible lessons that they were earnest and interested in learning then. But then, they've reached a point where they're in the clutches of the devil. They love this world and the things that are found in it, much like Demas in 2 Timothy 4.10. They find themselves motivated by and prompted by the things this world has to offer, and maybe money is behind much of it. They love the thought of coins, what money can buy, happiness they think they can find in it. Do you suppose Judas thought happiness was found in the money? Do you suppose he considered that in it and it alone was where the greatest joys of life are to be found? It would seem it was a strong motivating factor to him, wasn't it? A heart that's seared is mentioned on several occasions within the pages of the New Testament. We read in 1 Timothy the fourth chapter about the fact that there Paul rather directly said that there would be a great falling away. And there would be those whose heart would be seared as they followed the teachings that were false. Paul even lists what some of those teachings would be. Things like forbidding to marry, things like abstaining from certain kinds of food. Paul said there will be those whose hearts will be seared as they give heed to and interest in these matters. Perhaps more to the point for your life and mine today, what about the going through the motions that can be characteristic of us? I'm sure you, like I, have known individuals who maybe attended services at least once, twice, three times a week for years. And then the time comes that they find themselves engaged in some activity and you know that they know. Having heard dozens if not hundreds of sermons and Bible lessons that that's wrong, it's inappropriate... Where was their heart? Were they not listening? Were they overcome in weakness on a moment of particular trial and they simply fell to the nature of the sin that was found therein? No wonder we're reminded in James 1 verses 19 to 21 in words like these, Let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath, for the wrath of man worketh not the righteousness of God. But then James goes on to say, that you and I ought not to be given to superfluity of naughtiness, but let us receive with meekness the engrafted word which is able to save your souls. Where does our interest lie? Do we come to services with a genuine interest in the songs and in the message of the Word of God? Do we come with a genuine desire to truly worship, or do we come just because that's supposedly what we need to do? Do we come because somebody's told us we should? Do we come because we really want to? Those are good questions, aren't they? If we come with an earnest desire, then we will no doubt gain much from the time together because that period of worship is truly a very vital and meaningful time. 
It's a time when we are able to consider one another to provoke unto love and good works. Hebrews 10, 24. It's a time when we truly are able to be rejuvenated and refreshed in the language of Titus chapter 3. To say all of that is to say that would help us go a long way toward never having a seared heart. A heart that can be overwhelmed and evil and yet not appreciate the seriousness of it. Many times today, isn't it true that we encounter news stories of individuals who truly thought that they could cover up some evil and maybe they did for weeks or even months, but then it becomes known. Sometimes we wonder, how could they have done it? Was their heart never in it? Were they simply duping the people? Were they simply taking advantage of them? And the answer appears to be yes. But all the while they talked a good message. All the while they spoke a good life. Or so it seemed. May you and I have always a heart that's tender. Not a heart that can be overwhelmed and evil and yet apparently not realize the meaning of it or urgency of it. You'll notice that Paul spoke more than once about those who were overwhelmed in terms of a seared heart. In Ephesians 4, 19, he said that there were those who were overwhelmed in lasciviousness and uncleanness because their hearts were darkened. We notice in Romans 16, 18, mention is made about those again who were given to different things than what Christ had revealed. The error associated with divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which you've delivered, which you've received. But then verse 18 says that these serve their own belly. They're selfish. In this life, may we understand that Judas perhaps serves us as an example not to have a seared heart like he had, but rather a heart that's tender, a heart that's open to truth, a heart that's always receptive to the things that we see in the presentation of the Scriptures of the Son of God. Judas, as he had involved himself in those matters, perhaps takes us to maybe another lesson. This lesson, too, helps us see one other rather powerful feature of the life of Judas. We mentioned this earlier, and it again is something so well known. In Matthew 27, we find there that when Judas saw that Jesus was condemned, he took the money back, threw it at their feet. Notice he went out and took his life. What about the proper response to sin? What would be the right way for you and me to react to sin? When I come to realize that what I have done or what I did do was improper and sinful, what should I do in response? That is a very good question, and each of us face it from time to time. What did Judas do? We all know what he did. He again took the money back. What sorrow he felt was such that it didn't emanate in anything better than him taking his own life. He killed himself. May we be quick to say that as we give thought to our response to sin, look at just a few passages of Scripture that challenge us to think what should you and what should I do. When I'm guilty of sin, one of the first things to realize, each of us can appreciate when that moment comes that we find ourselves in sin, is to realize 1 John 1 verses 8 through 10. If we say we have no sin... 
we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. We thus ought not think, well, I'm perfect. I couldn't have been guilty of error. Surely I can just cloud this over. I can perhaps whitewash it. I can make it appear all right. Nobody will be the wiser. That's not the right approach to sin. Well, you and I should appreciate that that text again said, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. I'm just deceiving myself if I really believe that. And furthermore, he says in the two verses later that we make him a liar. If I go about my life pretending to be a Christian, pretending to be the one so righteous and pious and godly, and yet I'm living this life of sin, then I'm just living a lie. I live as a hypocrite. I live as one who is not convicted and convinced of what he claims to say. That's a sadness at the very least. We notice in light of Judas, doesn't it help us see that first we should just recognize that when sin comes, we should confess it. In James 5 verse 16, we read, Confess your faults one to another and pray one for another that you may be healed. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. We often ask, as if it's a convenient and opportune time, that if there would be those that have public sin and that you would like to make confession of it, we always offer that invitation in a time to come. We, of course, are quick to say that it's not that those are the only times that one could come. If you or I are in error, and I realize that tomorrow night. I need to pick up the phone and I need to make confession of it to those whom I have affronted. And we should appreciate that brothers and sisters in Christ would always be delighted to pray on my behalf and your behalf. And it would always be a very powerful time of reconciliation of brothers and of sisters in Christ. The loving characteristic that the effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much Judas, you see, went out and took his life. Acts chapter 1 will detail that a bit more. As there we find that there was a replacement selected, Matthias. But prior to that, we remember that there was a quotation from the Old Testament from the writings of David. And there were statements about the fact that he fell and all his bowels gushed out. It was noteworthy that this field of blood, this particular arrangement had been brought about by the, that money, and we notice what a sad end to this life. You and I have such potential as members and as servants in the kingdom of God. May we be not of seared heart and of wasteful disposition as we respond inappropriately to sin. You'll also notice beyond that that godly sorrow is an important matter. We read that in 2 Corinthians 7 verse number 10. For godly sorrow worketh repentance and salvation we first realize that that heart that's not seared needs to be a heart that can be so powerfully touched by the nature of sin. When you and I find ourselves guilty of those things, it should break our heart that we have violated the commandments of the one who loved us enough to send His Son to send a part of Himself to die for us. When we sin, you see, the principal characteristic of sin is not that I have hurt somebody else. That certainly is a part of it too. But it first and foremost is a violation of His will. 
No wonder Joseph said in Genesis 39, How can I commit this wickedness and sin against God? Joseph knew that if he committed fornication with Potiphar's wife, that first and foremost, that was a violation of what God said. Surely it would have been an affront to Potiphar. Surely it would have been a violation of his wife. Surely it would have impacted many. But first and foremost, it was a transgression of God's will. And today that still is principally what sin is, isn't it? Sin is the transgression of the will of God and His law. 1 John 3, 4. Thus, when we sin, it should in fact cause us in greater earnestness to ask, in light then of what God's book says, if it's His law I violated, I need His instruction to be made right again. What do I need to do? If a person is one who has never had his sins forgiven, we understand the plan of salvation is what the Scriptures have set out. Doesn't it take us back to the very nature of the life of that man named Saul? He had gone about persecuting the church. He had gone about exerting his effort with all the fullness of his nature because he did not believe in Christ at that time. He even went to Damascus having in his possession papers that would permit him to wreak havoc upon the church. Acts chapter 9 beginning in verse 1. We do find, though, that on that road to Damascus, he carried on a conversation with Jesus himself. It was told to him, Go into the city, and it shall be told thee what thou must do. There were some things Saul had to do. There was sin in his life. He had been guilty of at least assisting and abetting in the very death of Stephen. He had assisted in the nature of doing much damage and harm to the nature of Christ. He needed those sins forgiven. What did he have to do? Acts twenty two sixteen is a reflection from the words of the man himself, what he was told to do. When he arrived in Damascus and there met with Ananias, Ananias said, And now why tarriest thou arise and be baptized and wash away thy sins, calling on the name of the Lord? Sins couldn't be just whitewashed. They have to be washed away. Baptism is what did it. Paul later would say, Immediately I conferred not with flesh and blood, Galatians 1.16. We thus learn that if there would be one or more in this audience or at other times, that that person is in need of, in fact, having his or her sins washed away in baptism. That act of baptism is preceded and prerequisite by, of course, appropriate hearing and belief and repentance and confession. But we notice that once that person becomes a faithful member of the body of Christ, as so many within the sound of my voice have, it still is so possible for us to be found in error. In those times, may we have the correct response to sin. Noticing, of course, that Judas should remind us that there is a great invitation. Did Jesus say in Matthew 11, beginning in verse 28, Come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and you shall find rest unto your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. It could very well be that Judas was present and heard Jesus say that. If he did, it certainly didn't redound unto a great impact in his life later when he took his own life. 
it might be in conclusion to the lesson tonight as we've seen these two points. Maybe they highlight this consideration. What a tragedy it was for Judas to be in the midst of such perfection, in the midst of such positive influence, in the midst of such and one as Jesus the Christ, and yet to not be impacted in a positive way by Him. Isn't it also a tragedy that his seared heart led him ultimately to the finality of the deeds that he did? And isn't it a tragedy that his response to sin was as it was? He did betray Jesus. And that was a part of what, of course, took Jesus to that fateful scene of the cross. But what the Lord put in place was a plan of salvation that still benefits each and every one of us today, if we will but respond in faith to it. Tonight, if the need of your heart would be this, that you too need to come in humble petition before the goodness of the Son of God, why not do that tonight? Brother Harold has chosen this song of encouragement. If we could be of assistance to you in prayer of rededication for one who was once a faithful member of the Lord's body but now isn't, or if we could assist you in being the one to become a faithful member through the act of initial obedience, it would be a delightful evening for you, a one unlike any that shall ever be again. If we could be of help to you tonight, we would only petition and ask in urgency that you would let us know the way we can assist you. And to do that, while well, together we stand and while we sing.